0: If you were here last week, you will remember that the attitude by which Paul enters this letter is an attitude of this affection and this partnership that he feels he has with this church. And so he starts this letter uh, saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, saying to the church in Philippi, I am with you, you are with me, we are in this together, and we are collectively servants and children of the one we serve. And so we are in that way, so absolutely in the same sandbox playing in the same space. And so out of that initial attitude of I'm with you, Paul unpacked two things last week that will sort of set the tone for where we're headed today. Um, he, He shared with the church in Philippi, how excited he was when he thinks about the fact that they are on mission together uh, in the gospel partnership that they have as they are uh, carrying the gospel into the environments that God has placed them. Him in Rome under house arrest and them in Philippi in a complex cultural uh, situation. And so he sort of just shared his grand excitement that we are together on mission, high five, so incredible. And then he moved from there into this space that he said, though I'm very excited and very grateful that we get to do for Jesus, with Jesus, things together, what ties my heart to you, what ties your heart to me What holds you within my heart is not what we get to do together for Jesus. It is what we are recipients together of Jesus of. So the fact that we, you and me, are recipients of God's extraordinary grace and redemptive work, that is where my heart ties to you. So my love for you and my longing for you is tied to the beautiful reality that we are gospel partners, not only in our doing, but we are gospel partners in what we have received together. We are gospel partners in being recipients of the redemptive work of Jesus together. And in that gospel partnership, our hearts are deeply tied. And so, this is where we kind of traveled through last week. Now, as Paul continues to write this letter, uh, we catch a sentence that sort of bridges us into the next section that he's going to lay out in this letter. As the Spirit of God is moving him and inspiring him to write these words, Paul is writing to people he loves, people he knows, people he longs for, and his heart is being stirred, and we see a progression in his letter, and there is now this leap into something he does. For us to discover that, we need to roll into the Scriptures. So grab your Bibles, uh, and uh, grab those little journals if you have them, open them up, and let's Jump into what is going to unfold as Paul continues to pen this incredible letter. So, uh, Paul has just come out of of verse seven, uh, and he's talked about this holding you in my heart because we are both partakers of God's grace, and man, we are in this together, seeing this unfold. And then he writes this sentence, verse eight For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul here, out of this expression that he is so excited about the partnership and and that that he holds them in their hearts because they are recipients of the grace of God, that we are connected so deeply, I love you so deeply, he now says, this external expression, man, as I think about how much I love you, I kind of want to just roll over and grab some coffee. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's like, I just want you to know like, I'm, I long to be in proximity with you. I long for you. I long to be with you. I want to come to you. There is in this verse, in this single sentence, uh, sort of this also a longing from Paul that in this partnership that they're in, he wants to kind of bring something to them, himself to them, what God has given him to them. Because remember, this letter is in response to a very tangible experience Paul had of the Philippian church in their expression of love toward him. They sent him a financial gift and they sent him their longing for his goodwill in Christ, his well-being, because He says that in the letter. Not only did I receive the gift, but I hear your heart for me. And so now I kind of want to come to you. And I want to bring what I have to you. I long for you. But I love that he also says, I long for you, not because you are you, but because you are in Christ and I am in Christ and we are together. I long for you with the affection of Jesus. So I love this again, because it brings us back to this in our human relational experiences. When we say, man, I long to be in your proximity. I long for you. I miss you. We usually say that when things are going well between us, you know what I'm saying? Man, I long for you because you are you, except that sometimes you're also you. And then I don't long for you at all. You with me so far? Our longing for each other, when the reason for our longing is you is fickle and it is it is fragile and it comes and goes depending on the you that you're being you with me so far but paul is saying no 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 my longing toward you transcends wherever i might find you being you it is neither dependent on that going well Or eliminated by that going badly. My affection toward you is in this clarity of our being recipients and partners in the gospel. And so my longing for you is with the affection of Christ Jesus. Because we are together. This is important because it gives us a transcendent reason to continue to move in unity together. Even when that is difficult because our affection is tied to one who is greater than all of us collectively and greater than any of us individually. And so we want to do that. So he says, man, I'm longing. I want to be with you. I want to bring myself to you. I want to partner with you tangibly like you did me. But now what he's going to do is he's going to say, though I long for proximity with you to bring to you things like you brought to me, I am going to bring you something. I am going to gift you something. I am going to offer you something that is a partnering in the gospel with you. Uh, It is a tangible way that I am participating with you and for you. Like you participated with me and for me in sending your gift. And this is what he writes. Look at this. So I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that. So what is Paul going to do now? He's going to say, listen, as I yearn for you, I can from this space where I'm not in your proximity, without means to send you tangible something, I can do this. I will pray for you. Now, this sounds wonderful, and we're Christians here. And so we know, theologically speaking, that when we start talking about prayer, we say things like, man, prayer is the most important thing. We say things like, man, prayer is the most powerful thing we can do. We say things like, man, uh, sure, I could use some financial help or I could use some encouragement or I could use some uh, human comfort that Jesus works through you for me. But at the end of the day, uh, all that stuff is secondary. What I really want is for you to pray for me. We say these things all the time but they are not things necessarily that feel quite as believable as we make them sound when they come out of our mouths. Because prayer is a strange thing, isn't it? We know that it's powerful because we were told that it's powerful. We've had some experiences that we pretty sure demonstrated its power, but the truth is it's a bit of a guess because when I come and I give you a check for a million dollars through your ministry, that has a tangibility to it. You're like, oh, powerful! But when I say I'm praying for you, you're like, oh, thank you. (laughs) And so I'm just being honest that sometimes we might feel rightly in our heads that perhaps prayer is important, but is it as tangible as some of the other things? And what Paul is demonstrating here is that when I receive tangible things from you that are powerful, and I offer back to you a prayer I have for you, that there is a partnership and equality in that that is powerful. In fact, it is one of the beautiful tools we've been given in this gospel partnership that we can offer to one another that we are actually not even fully aware of the magnitude of its power. So Paul says, I long for you with the affection of Christ, so I am going to pray for you. Now, the question becomes, As he offers this prayer, what is he going to pray? And Paul actually goes on to pray it for them. This is important because how many times do you and I bump into each other and we share story for a minute in a lobby or we share story for a a time over a cup of coffee or we share story over numerous hours on telephones about adoptions, for example, with these two amazing people. And then when we're done with that, we say these words to each other. I will pray for you. But isn't it funny that we often say that sort of, and we stop there. Hey, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to go somewhere at some point. And I'm going to pray for you, but I'm not going to, one, pray for you right now necessarily. Sometimes we do that. I'm not saying we never do that, but that's just kind of a standard thing. i will praying for you, praying for you. I'll pray for you. And Paul could have done that here. He could have done that here. Then it would have just been a statement of something he does in some regularity. But now it's more than a statement of something he does for them in regularity. It is actually a gift offered in immediacy. He's saying, not I pray for you. Hey guys, long for you with the affection of Christ. And just so you know, regularly pray for you. No, he's like, no, no, I'm going to pray for you now. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what I pray for you because this prayer in this letter is part of what I'm Offering you with this letter. Have you ever typed those texts or those emails or even written a letter? I don't know, anybody remember how we used to do that? Um, when you're writing something down that is for someone else, and it is either a very hard thing you're writing or a very longing thing you're writing, and you might start with the sentence As I write this email, letter, text, there are tears coming down my cheeks. Have you ever done that? Anybody here? Those of you admitting, thank you, courageous. Love you guys. Those of you not, you're just not admitting it. (laughs) It's totally true. You know that feeling when we're writing something and there is such emotion tied to it that you just feel what you feel. And I sense deeply from Paul as he writes this little prayer and this little introduction that he's like, listen, I'm not just writing this about something I'm going to pray for you. I, I'm just going to stop right here. I'm going to pray right now for you. I'm going to pray for you right now. And here's what I'm going to pray for you. Look at this. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So here's where Paul starts with this prayer. So th- think about this for a second. The Philippian church is in the middle of a cultural insanity, right? Right? I mean, you guys, if you weren't here last week, go go listen in the week before when Joel, I mean, go listen. It is a crazy cultural context with lots of hostility and lots of difficulty and lots of potential physical harm that might come their way. Lots of persecution, lots of struggle, lots of stuff going on. So if you're going to pray for a church like this, they've shared with you their discomfort, their struggle, their suffering, their confusion, their wrestle, their temptations, like I feel like what you might start with is, man, I I pray for God's protection over you. I pray for God's comfort for you. I pray for God's wisdom to be born in you. I pray for God, but here's where Paul starts. Man, I pray for you. And this is what I pray, that your love would abound more and more. What a place to start with a prayer. That I pray that your love will abound more and more. We are typically people that, walk into the space of praying for others when we recognize that there is some comfort or protection or something needed to bring some relief. You with me? This is where we mostly employ prayer. There is relief needed in a human being's life, and I want to bring that relief through prayer for you. Anything wrong with that? No, obviously not. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Others did it. We should do that. Yes, but it is our primary, if not exclusive space often, that we bring prayer. And what we find in Scripture here as well is that when Paul would pray or Jesus would pray, that in some regularity, if not more regularity than the comfort prayers, They would pray a different kind of prayer. They would pray for something to happen in a person rather than for something to happen for a person. And this was an interesting and beautiful part of how Jesus or how Paul would often pray for the people of God. And here Paul starts with, what I pray first is that your love would abound more and more. It is reminiscent in many ways of what we already know came from Jesus, right? Remember when Jesus was uh, hanging out and one of the teachers of the law came to him and offered him a question. Hey, rabbi, uh, when you think about the law, there's so many of them, a bunch out of the Bible, and then a bunch that we made up out of the Bible that weren't in the Bible. We got so many laws, we don't know what to do with all the laws we have. And there's a bunch of rabbis here, and they all disagree about which of those laws are the most important and which are not. Probably by the ones that they came up with themselves versus somebody else. Who knows? But I know humans, and I know my own heart, and that's where I would roll. This one's more important. I came with it up yesterday. And so, He comes to Jesus and he's like, what do you you think? What What do you think? Which one's the most important? And there was some trickery going on there as well. In that context, the rabbis were trying to throw a grenade to create a storm to prove Jesus crazy. And what does Jesus say? Well, it's a great question. There is actually a command that rises to the surface. In fact, a command on which all other commands and all the teachings of the prophets hang on and rest on. If this one is true the others will become true. If this one is not true, the others are likely not to be true. And this is the command that you, human being, would love the Lord your God with what? All of you. All of you. A heart? Yes, heart. Mind? Yes, mind. Body? Yes, body. Soul? Yes, All of you, if there is a part of who you are in any way, give that part fully to the loving of God, uh, to the giving and surrendering to God. And this command, when it is realized, will bleed into all the other commands. This is the command, love well the Lord your God with all of yourself. And Jesus said, second to that, but tied to it impossible to separate, is to love the humans around you, your neighbors, as you love yourself. John would later on write in the letter that the letters he writes and say, if you say you love uh, God but you hate your brother, you do not love God. In other words, separating those two commands Uh, is not a possibility because one does not exist without the other becoming true. So if one is not true, the other will not be true. And if one is true, the other will become true. This is how they are intricately connected. And so here, Paul taking all that he knows of the gospel starts with the church in Philippi and says, when I pray for you, what I offer you as my gift in partnership to the gospel and you realizing the gospel within you moving so that your Christ likeness increases, I offer you this. That your love may abound more and more. I also love Paul because he uses language like I like to use language. Why use the word grow when you can use the word abound? You know what I'm saying? Like, we're all like usually like, I pray your love gets better. Mm. It's the same thing. But there's something about the way Paul typically digs deep and comes out. And he's like, I don't want your love to grow. I want to get better. I want it to about. No, you're not allowed to say it like that. Like you're, abound. You're, not, you're not allowed to use words like that in a way like you use words like better. You can use those words. I want it to be better. But when you get to abound, you've got you to gotta bring it like a growl, like from deep within. You've got to say, I want your love to abound more and more still. That's what I want. And so he says that. But now Paul says something that is extraordinary. Because he recognizes, as the Spirit inspires him, that when you come to humans and you say, I want your love to abound, the definition of what love is becomes super problematic, right? Because what is love? I mean, Forrest Gump said he knew, but he never told us. You know what I'm saying? Partly because he didn't know. Because he doesn't know. None of us know. We don't know what love is. We don't even know what love is in the moment. Is love bringing hard news to someone sometimes? Is love bringing not hardening someone and holding it back. Sometimes is love engaging uh, in letting somebody off the hook. Sometimes is love engaging not letting someone off the hook. Sometimes is love soft and gentle. Sometimes is love hard and firm. Sometimes is love truth-oriented. Sometimes and is love grace-oriented. Sometimes and sometimes and you eventually you're exhausted. And so what we do is we just redefine love consistently to match whatever environment we find ourselves in so we can convince ourselves that we are loving well. But the truth is we don't know what love is well until we discover what God says love is. And he begins to. So look what Paul writes here. Take a look at this. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he says, if you're going to love, I don't just want you to love more. I want you to love well. And if you're going to love well, you're going to love in the way that God defines love, not in the way that you define love or I define love. And so in order to know how God defines love, you've got to go on a journey and there's got to be some growth. And what do you have to grow in? You have to grow in knowledge and you have to grow in discernment. So the, the the Greek word used here for discernment is really interesting. He actually uses two Greek words in this one sentence, this one and the next one, which we'll get to in a second, and they can be translated into the same way, discern or discernment, but they have different nuances. This first one he uses here is the active cognitive process of wrestling with a knowledge. So you go find a knowledge, a fact, a truth, a a thing, and then you wrestle with it, to determine what it means or to determine it to be true. This is the word we call to be discerning or to practice discernment. Discernment is not an arrival in this Greek word it is a process. Are you with me so far? So Paul says, I want you to love more, but not just more. I want you to love well, and you can't love well if you don't know what God's love is. And to know what God's love is, my prayer for you is that you would grow in knowledge and in the wrestling with knowledge, both individually with the Spirit and collectively as the community, so that your knowledge isn't just know, it's also having realized, wrestled with, discerned. And so my Prayer is that your love would be a discerning love and a knowledgeable love based on God's description of love, not your own. And that's not just one-time discernment. It is the ongoing trusting and surrendering to God by his spirit to discern what love is in this moment that will be the best definition of what I now by knowledge know what God's love is. And so we work on discerning, but look what he says now. I pray that you would love with a kind of love that is full of knowledge and discernment because you've done the work so that you may approve what is excellent. This word approve here can also be translated discern. So the Greek word there is sometimes translated discern, sometimes approve. In the NIV, for example, they have this verse say that you may discern what is excellent. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the same word used here that is translated to approve is used there and often translated there as discern. In Romans 12, 1 through 3, it says this, In view of God's mercy, dear brothers and sisters, I ask you to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind's knowledge, God's knowledge, so that you might approve or discern what is the will of God. There's that Greek word that you might have a discernment that isn't an active, ongoing discernment, but is a clarity. So the Greek word in the second sentence is this. You're going to do the work of discernment so that you land on a discernment. You with me? That you can discern, that you can see, that you can approve. And here he's saying, my prayer for you in praying for love, that is a love born out of the knowledge of God and the discerning process of that knowledge would lead you to a active then discernment of what is excellent. And when we use the word excellent, like you will later in Philippians, we can also interchange that word with the will of God. Why is the will of God ever not excellent? And if something is defined biblically as excellent, what can we assume that it is part of the will of God? Will God ever say, man, I call that excellent, but it is not my will. Now, by definition, this, hey, if you can discern what is excellent, what is right, what is good, you are also in that moment discerning what? What is the will of God? And so Paul here says, what my prayer for you is, Philippians and by the Spirit of God, who wrote this through Paul for his collective people, including us, what the Spirit of God is saying to you and I is, I pray that your love may abound more and more with a knowledge and discernment of process that will lead you to be able to discern or approve what is excellent. What is an excellent love? What is a biblical love? What is a godly love? What is the will of God in love? And when you do, and that is expressed out of you, two things happen that I'm going to pray are the result of this kind of abounding love full of knowledge and discernment that leads to a discernment of God's will and excellence. Look at this. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here Paul says, when... I pray this for you, and it is realized, what will be born out of that is two things. First, you as a person living in this kind of love, abounding in you, you will see the external expression of the growing reality of the purity and blamelessness that is now your journey in life. This gets tricky, so listen carefully. See, Paul is kind of doing both here. He's tapping into the idea that we are blameless and pure because of what? Jesus. That's right. Are you blameless and pure on your own? No. Can you ever be? No. Will you ever be? No. So when we talk pure and blameless, we are talking language that is the work of Jesus. You with me? But if Jesus has done that work in us and he is doing that work in us through the journey of sanctification or transformation, What should the outward experience be of our expressions? More pure and blameless or less so? More. It's not a trick question. That is like a straight up more answer, right? More. If I'm becoming more like Jesus, then what should you experience more of in me? Purity and blamelessness because he is pure and blameless and he has made me pure and blameless, though I wrestle still with some of those outward expressions because I live in a body of flesh. And what Paul says here is as your love abounds because of your knowledge and discernment that leads to discerning excellence, one of the results will be that people experience more of Jesus instead of more of Renaud. And we don't want them to experience more of Renaud. We want them to experience more of Jesus. And so he says, man, what a cool thing that on the day of Christ, the external realities of your purity and your blamelessness, which has been affected by Christ, he says it in there, will also be an expressive experience that when you leave this planet, you'll be able to be like, there's more of that. I hope when I leave the planet, I can say I was more of Jesus and less of Renault as my life progressed. And the people around me experienced more of Jesus and less of renault as my life develops, And Paul says that will be the result of this prayer of abounding love in knowledge and discernment that discerns excellence. And then he says, and wait for it, since this coming out of you love will be the kind of love that is pure and blameless more and more, the fruit of pure and blameless of Jesus is always the fruit of righteousness, which is also the fruit of the spirit, which is also the fruit of salvation, which is also the fruit of life. When you go through scripture, when it says the fruit of righteousness, salvation, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of life, it is all the interchangeable realities that whatever fruit is born from Jesus through Jesus is always going to be a fruit of righteousness. And Jesus was the one that said in John chapter 15, if you want to be the bearer of the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the Spirit or the good fruit of life, then where do you extract that kind of bearing fruit? You take the little branch you are and you plug it into Him because He is the vine and we are the branches. And so here Paul says, and I'm praying this for you because the more your knowledge and discernment leads to a love that abounds, that is a biblical love, because you can discern excellence, the more purity and blamelessness will be the expression, and the more the fruit that will be born will not be your fruit or mine, but it will be the fruit of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit is good fruit, the fruit of righteousness. And when this fruit of righteousness is born, then what will happen is that that fruit of righteousness will be to the glory and praise of God. Not of Renault, not of Mosaic, not of you, but of God. Because it will be clear that what you're experiencing is more of Jesus and less of me. So it's interesting to me, as we enter this space, and Paul says, I offer this gift to you, two things spark my curiosity. One, that in this description of partnership, He would offer a prayer as a tool, a part of his partnership. So first of all, I would just offer to you, as I offer to my own heart, that we should be moved to remember that when we pray for each other, that in fact, that tool is as equally and powerfully, if not more so, the same beautiful partnership in the gospel as is some of the tangible tools us Western Christians like to enjoy more because we feel a greater partnership because, frankly, to be honest, we feel that we were a little bit more responsible for the wonder. But when we pray, we really can't take any credit for the wonder other than the praying itself. And it doesn't feel so American. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't really do anything. He did it all. That's not fun. But isn't that actually where we should land? And isn't that actually true whenever we do anything? That actually he did it all? But we like the tangible things more. And here Paul says, man, I long to be with you. I can't, but I can offer you as much partnership as you have offered me in your financial gift. I can offer you this prayer. And the second thing that sparks my curiosity is not just that he offered a prayer as a means of gospel partnership, but it is what he prayed. Not for the comfort of the people though he can, and I'm sure he did often pray that, but that his prayer in partnership was offered as a prayer for their transformation, for the change within rather than the change outside. I don't pray for things to change for you as much as I pray for you to be transformed into a Christ-likeness. So we, if we are going to be gospel partners, are given the privilege of saying maybe, I shift some of my praying for those around me into a praying, not just for things for you. God bless them. God protect them. God keep them safe. By all means, yes. But actually that I maybe move my prayers to more of a God. Make them more like you. Transform them. Expose what is not yet like you and bring it to bear. Show them where they do not love well and teach them to love well help knowledge and discernment to be a part of their lives so that they would see your way of love and engage in it. These are the prayers that we must offer God for and on behalf of one another. But why don't we? Because we all sit here like, mm, yeah, I feel that. Amen. Transformation. Well, there's a reason we don't pray these things much. Because partly we just forget we're so obsessed with comfort. So we are driven by the experience and we want to pray for things. Please, God, help me be more comfortable. So partly it's just discomfort kind of drives us. But partly it's also because transformation, when you actually begin to experience it, is a terribly scary thing. A terribly scary thing. Because transformation requires, first and foremost, an exposure of where we do not love well. See, part of the discerning process is I have a version of love and then I encounter knowledge, the word of God, and it, def- it, it, it opposes my version of love. It calls it into question. And then I go, eh, whatever. And then it says, not only does it call into question, but man, it's been affected in bad ways and it's hurt people. I didn't, eh. and, then we, and, and then we abandon ship on the transformation process. Next week, I'm going to have the opportunity to share in much more depth part of the journey of my last five and a half months. I'm going to walk through a lot of details in that and what God has been doing and shaping in me. And some of it is absolutely beautiful and some of it was a brutal experience because of the nature of what it was, the process of transformation. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, just as a hint to this, that I much more carefully walk into these spaces of like, let's pray for God to transform us because it is a incredibly difficult space. One of the opportunities I had throughout the five and a half months, sort of over the period of time in different settings, is that people who are in my sort of circle of dailiness, a lot of the staff, uh, friends, other people had the opportunity to come in some regularity with some help and share with me some of the ways that they have experienced my trying to love them well in ways that didn't love them well, kind of that that didn't, didn't love me well. And when you experience in regularity, a consistency of people kind of bringing where they see you haven't loved super well, what is your initial desire, your initial temptation, your initial humanity is to become defensive and to go, oh, you just misunderstood. Oh, let me explain. Oh, it's all wrong. Oh, I didn't mean it. But what this prayer brings to each of our tables is to say, what if? We entered spaces to say, God, show me with knowledge and discernment where my definitions or thoughts or expressions of what I think is loving well might actually not be. Because I don't want to love Renaud's way well and have the other humans adjust to what I think is love. I actually want to love your way well so that they don't have to adjust because your love is perfect for all the humans. But that is a work of dying when you, when, you, when you open yourself up to that, either by God's work or by others, and you invite others to start speaking into where you need some discerning and some knowledge on the way that God wants you to love, you want to die. But for me, it was Costa Rica, a beach, a surfboard, and no humans ever again around me. Not because I didn't want humans around because they're mean, though we all are, It's that I didn't want to be around them because you start seeing where your love fails. So desperately and when you hurt people and when you encounter the fact that you're hurting people, even when you're trying not to your first thought is I'm going to go crawl in a hole so I don't hurt anybody else and then God has to begin the slow and beautiful work of saying good. We have started the journey, but I will show you a way to love my way. This is why we don't pray these things and this is why when we do and God says okay. We'll start. Then we go, Dot time out! Just kidding! And we bail. But what if we were a people that offered this prayer for ourselves and for others in regularity? God, transform us and show us with knowledge and discernment what love is. And then empower us and transform us to help us love. Jesus in John chapter 12 said, A kernel, if it never drops to the ground and dies, will never produce fruit, but it must first fall and die before it produces fruit. When we engage in the hard work of transformation, the knowledge and discernment we need entering God's word by his spirit and letting each other speak into that, there is a dying. But that dying is the dying of self so that born would be the greater beauty and expression of Jesus. And if we are unwilling to die to self, then we will not see the expressions of pure and blameless realities come out as Jesus becomes more and we become less. This is what Paul is inviting the Philippians into by praying it for them, not by asking them to do it because it is a work of God. That we participate in, not a work of man that he watches and waits to see. So, may we become a people that offer one another regularly prayers of transformation, as daring and as crazy it is. But if you're gonna do that, if I'm gonna do that, may I say this one thing? When we pray for others' transformation, it's great, it's good for them, we say, which it is. It's good for the gospel, and particularly, it's good for us. God, transform him, transform her to be more like you because then I will be the recipient of you instead of them. (laughs) It's good. It's a big win. But perhaps that mixes our motives a bit. Not praying for them, but praying about them for us. So this is perhaps a good way to start. Every time I pray a prayer of transformation for those around me, perhaps I start where? By praying that same prayer of transformation first and foremost, for myself to say, I bet God there's as much or more in me that needs transforming before I pray for them. So would you do the work in both of us? And what if we're all praying that for each other? Well, then you'll have hundreds and hundreds of people praying for your transformation. It's pretty much over for you, (laughs) but don't worry. You're praying it for them. So it's over for them too. (laughs) And in the end, after we have all died, well, he who reigns supreme will be found to be more in us than ever. And we will become what we were made to be, image bearers of our creator, our savior Jesus. Let's pray. God, thanks for this incredible and beautiful letter that you are beginning to unfold for us to say, look, look and see. Thank you that today we are reminded that when we come before you on behalf of one another, And we pray with hearts that are full for the transformation of one another. That you do extraordinary things, bringing about an expression of purity and blamelessness that leads to fruit of righteousness. And I can't imagine what a place would feel like where we are obsessed together with hearts full of each other to pray for one another. For the transformation of Christ-likeness so that we can show the world what an oasis the church can be in a dry and weary land instead of the dust that fills the land. God, may we become a place where we are driven to desire transformation for ourselves and for each other and to pray diligently on behalf of each other for it. Show us the way so that we might see you clearly and that you might be more in us than we are in ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.